0: It's good to see you here this morning. Today we're going to be concluding our series on discipleship as he is being and making disciples. You know, it's funny, when I started this series, this study was actually the one I had in mind, but it was one of those things where you couldn't just jump into it, there was Things that had to be laid as a foundation before you could get to that place. I don't know if any of you maybe play an instrument. I remember when I first learned how to play guitar, I would go into my guitar teacher and I would bring a cassette tape back then and I'd pop it in the, you know, little cassette player and I'd say, I want to learn this song. And it'd be like Eddie Van Halen or something like that or Joe Satriani, you know, (laughs) Yeah, I want to play that And my teacher would laugh at me And say, well, let's first work on some basic things here Let's get some foundational things underneath our belt Because before you can do that You're going to have to learn how to do this And it's the very same thing that happens with us Before we can begin to make disciples of all nations As Jesus told us to do We first have to be disciples Because unless we are a disciple of Christ, how are we going to make others into that? And so we've looked over the past few weeks at what that means to be a disciple. We've talked about some various areas of what that was encompassing. We saw that Jesus, when he was asked, what is the greatest commandment? What is the most important thing? He told them, basically what we know as the Shema of Israel. He said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, and you should love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength, and you should love your neighbor as yourself. And he said, this was basically the foundation of the law and the prophets, that everything is hinged on these things, and that is how Jesus lived his life, and we talked about our role as a disciple is following after Jesus. How he lived is how we want to live. And he gave us that example, and as we're following in this example, we saw in that first lesson how important it was to give ourselves to God with all our heart, and our heart being the the center of our lives where everything stems from, the core of our being that we had to give that to the Lord. And then our feelings or our soul, the seat of our emotion, we had to surrender to God and not be controlled by them, but allow God to control them with our mind, how we think, have to think right, and with the things that we do with our strength. If we have these areas of our lives living as Jesus did, We talked about that center portion where they all meet is is what it means to be a disciple. It's the biblical way of knowing God with our heart, with our soul, with our mind, with our strength. Giving ourselves to God. And so being a disciple has to talk about the totality of our lives being yielded to God so that he would be evident in all these areas of our lives. We then talked about the fact that this is impossible. How do you surrender all these areas of our lives? And before you think, well, if it's impossible, I'm going to leave now. I'll see you later. We talked about the need of the Holy Spirit. How the necessity of the Holy Spirit to be a part of our lives. And we went through the book of Acts and we saw that Jesus said that we would receive power when the Holy Spirit came upon us. We know of Acts chapter 2 where the, the Spirit fell upon us all those who were waiting in the upper room. And then we saw that it happened again and again and again in chapter 4, chapter 9, chapter 13. We see that they were filled with the Spirit. They were filled with the Spirit. They were empowered with the Spirit. That the power of the Spirit in our lives is a necessity if we are going to be a disciple of Jesus. This is not something we can just muster up. It's not a matter of just behaving right. It's about being empowered by God to live right. And we need His help in this. And the dependency of the Spirit is something that the early church had consistently. It's something that we need to have consistently within our own lives. If we're going to be a disciple, if we're going to follow in Jesus' steps, then we need His power to do it. It's a strength that comes from Him and not only of ourselves. And we talked about how we need to ask, we need to seek, we need to knock, we need to be persistent, we need to be consistently dependent on God for all these things. And then we talked last week about one of the obstacles to being a disciple is basically idolatry. When Jesus said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. It was a declaration that in spite of all the nations around Israel at that time who worshipped a multitude of God that Israel acknowledged there was one God. And we need to acknowledge that one God within our lives. And if we have Other gods, and we talked about that god of money or consumerism, this idea that I can satisfy my life by things. It's something that is so prevalent in our culture that pretty soon God becomes second place to our jobs, our career, our our basically enjoyment. That becomes what we focus on. And Jesus said it very clearly, you can't serve God and money. You're going to love the one, you're going to hate the other, you're going to cling to one, you're going to despise the other. And he told us that we should seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and that these things that we needed would be added to us. And so we saw that before we could actually lead people into freedom of being a disciple of Christ, that we ourselves needed to be set free from a lot of the things that just entangle us, this material possession world that we live in that begins to possess who we are, begins to control how we live and focus our lives instead of God focusing our lives. And so being a disciple has to do with these areas of our lives, surrendering to God, all these areas of our lives. And then we also spoke about the fact that we each are responsible for this. That this isn't something that belongs to leadership, the clergy, the pastors, the priests. This is something that we need to own. That we each have to be disciples. That it's not someone else's job, but it's our job. We talked about in Corinthians how when we come together, each of us is supposed to give something to the community that we're in. Someone will sing a song, someone will teach, someone will give a word of exhortation from the scripture. Someone will give a tongue, an interpretation of tongue, but all these things are to be done so that we can build each other up and we are the body of Christ. We are participating in the work of God. That's what it is to be a disciple, to be participating in this work dependent on God, desiring those things that he desires for our lives to be evident within our lives. In Matthew chapter 28... Verse 18 through 20 is the Great Commission. We are familiar with this passage. We've heard it at some point in our lives. And verse 18, it says, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That should make us stop right there. That, that should be a. a A heart stopper there. When Jesus says that, you've got to think, wow, that's a pretty heavy statement. And and as he makes the statement, he has room to make the statement. He just rose from the dead, okay? Gives him a little credibility. You know, if I were to say, I have all power in heaven and earth, you guys could throw tomatoes at me or whatever, you know, it's like, you know, who are you? Don't do that, by the way. But anyway, you have no backing, but Jesus has just conquered death. And so the disciples now have seen the risen Savior. Their their jaws are on the floor. And they've been walking and, and he's been appearing to them time and time again through different times over this space of time. And all of a sudden he comes up and he says, all authority is given to me in heaven and in earth. And they're like, I believe it. I believe it. And he goes on and he says, therefore... Since I have all power... Now, what would you do if you had all power and authority? What would you do? Don't answer that, okay? I don't really need to know. You can go there in your own heart and deal with that. But Jesus says, All power and authority is given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, this is the intriguing thing. All power has been given to me, Jesus says. And so he says, I want you to go. Wait, I thought you had the power. Why don't you go? You've got all the power. Just go. Take care of it. We'll watch TV. We'll be backing you. You know, we're we're supporting you. We're your biggest fan, Jesus. But he says, all power is given to me. Go. Go. You see, and this is where we have to understand what it means to be a disciple. Remember, we spoke about that first time when we talked about being a disciple, how a rabbi would have all these young men following him. And they would follow him wherever he went. If he went to get something to eat in the market, they would follow him. If he had a discussion somewhere, was talking to someone, went to someone's house, they followed him into the house. They would actually even follow him into the restroom because they wanted to know about their rabbi and everything about him. Serious. I know that seems weird. It's like, okay, this is where my discipleship stops, at that threshold. You know, but they they were so just, I want to know what it is like to be a rabbi because the point was, I want to take your place. And so Jesus has power and authority, and he's now saying, you're my disciples, and go and make disciples of all nations. And this is our commission. This is what we need to do. This is what we want to do. And what I want to talk about a little bit this morning is how do we do that? You know, farmers, there's different ways that farmers keep their livestock. And some farms, what they'll do is they'll put a fence around their property. If they have some acreage and they'll throw maybe a bobbed wire fence that'll keep the animals from wandering past their property, kind of keep them close to the ranch. But then you've got some of these ranches, like in the outback in Australia, that are just so vast that you cannot put a fence around that property. It's just too big. And so what the ranchers do is they dig a well. And in this well, they develop a well that has fresh water. And what will happen is the animals will stay near the water. Otherwise, they'll die. And so the animals are free to roam wherever they want. But you see, they know I have to stay near the well. And so there's no need for fences because they will not go that far. If they go too far, they don't know if they're going to get any water. So they stay within the ranch perimeters just because there is water there that is able to refresh them, that is able to satisfy their needs for survival. And you see, discipleship is much like that. But we have taken discipleship and have, I believe, made it cloudy and fuzzy as what it is. And maybe it's just me and the way I've been brought up. Maybe it's you as well. I mean, I don't want to assume these things. But one of the things we've kind of been taught is that what what there is is you're either in the faith, and that little box of in has a a solid line around it. It's a fence. To be in the faith, you have to be inside this fence. You have to have accepted Jesus as your Savior. You have to have denounced immoral things, be living the right life. And so there's basically the saints, and then there's the ain'ts. And you're either in or you're out, And that's the choices that you have. And so if you want to be a disciple, well, you have to come to faith in Jesus. Then you come into the box. And then what happens is you go to a class where someone will go through a booklet with you and say, okay, you want to be a disciple? Let's read this book together. You've accepted Christ in your life. And so now you're going to basically start the sanctification process. You're going to get better and better and better and better and better better and better and better, and that never stops, by the way, you just kind of keep getting better and better, and now you're in this faith, you're in this box, but this is what discipleship is, you've come to faith, you're in the box now, you're in the farm, or, you know, the ranch, whatever it is, you're, you're <laughs> hate to call it a church a farm, but anyway, you're in this area, and now the work can begin, but you see, that's not how it is with Jesus, At least, that's not what we see in Scripture. Turn to Luke chapter 5, and let's look at a little bit of what Jesus did. Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, we're going to look at Jesus' calling of the first disciples. And in verse 1, he says, one day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret with the people... We've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. In other words, here's you know, my little disclaimer. We're not going to catch anything, but okay, you're the boss. Verse 6 says, And when they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break, so that they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. And followed him. Now, this is an amazing story. And we know here from this account that Simon, we see his brothers, we know that Andrew, James, and John, they were all fishermen. We also know that Matthew or Levi was a tax collector before he became a disciple. We know that Simon was a zealot, a zealot was a political activist. Basically, the Romans considered him a terrorist. He was out to, to bring down the Roman Empire or anyone who sided with it, like tax collectors. Now, can you imagine? I'm telling you, people, there is a movie to be made about Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector and them growing together. Anyway, I just throw that out for you. Someone needs to make that movie because that would be a powerful film. But you have these people from these different walks of life. We know that Andrew and Philip have Greek names and they spoke Greek to the Greek listeners who were following Jesus. And so they were not kind of in the traditional Jewish setting. The point is this. Discipleship began at an early age. From ages 6 through 10, the Hebrew children went through what was called Safar. And what they did in this area is they memorized the Torah. The first five books of Moses. They memorized it from ages 6 to 10. Are you feeling stupid yet? Hold on, because it's going to get worse. After age of 10, if they had learned the first five books... Then they went on to learn the rest of the scriptures and it was called Bet Talmud. And from 10 to 15, they had to memorize the entire scriptures. And the point is the rabbi wanted to ask them, what does this say? And they would recite Ezekiel or they would recite Jeremiah, recite Moses or Habakkuk or Jonah, whoever. They would know these scriptures enough to be able to recite those things. And if they were good enough, And the rabbi saw them and had this discussion with them. They went on to what was called Bet Midrash, where the the rabbi would say to them, I think you have what it takes to be like me and to be my disciple. Leave your family. Come and follow me. And so these young boys, 15, 16 years of age, would follow the rabbi because they had what it takes. Few, the proud. If they didn't have what it takes, if they weren't the best of the best, the rabbi would say, You know what? You're not able to be my disciple. Go back home and continue in your father's work. You can go on and continue your father's work, but you cannot be my disciple. Now, what was Peter? He was a fisherman. Now, we don't know how far he got in this process. You see, there are some that excel in these areas. They just got it together. And you guys know that. Maybe you were some of those in in the class. You know, there was the the teacher's pets and they learned everything and they were always girls and girls. You know, the teacher would give them their paper and it would be, you know, Allison, look, Allison, you got an A. You know, here's your paper, Allison. And then they'd come over to me and they'd go, here, Sam, here's your paper. And I'm like, my name's not Fred. What is this paper for? You know, it's like, I don't get it. You know, they they excelled and I didn't. I I couldn't quite get there. I didn't have what it takes to excel in those areas. And maybe it was math. Maybe it was English. Maybe it was history. Maybe it was all of the above. You know, Didn't have quite what it took. Well, Peter was back fishing. Matthew was a tax collector. Simon James, these others were fishermen. What did that mean? They did not make the cut. They were just going about their business. And when Peter said, Lord, depart from me, I am a sinful man. I think Peter was telling Jesus you don't understand who I am. I'm not one of those. I'm not one of those people who follow after God like these others do. I'm a fisherman. I've been resigned to this as my daily task. This is my livelihood. This is what I'm going to do. And you see, what Jesus is doing is picking people who aren't in the know, who aren't in the mainstream. And he's saying, I'm choosing you To be my disciples. He's picking them before they knew what was going on. And you see, Jesus' choice of disciples was against the accepted structure of society. He calls people to follow him who are ritually unclean, like fishermen, that were nationally suspect, the publicans or tax collectors, and also who were politically dubious. He's picking people that you and I would not pick. They aren't the in crowd. They are outside of the box. They're still ain'ts. And you see, instead of discipleship being, you first come to this place, you accept the Lord, and then we will start working on you. Discipleship has something that begins before. There's a, a pre conversion discipleship. And we see that there's this pre-conversion discipleship where Jesus is spending his time with his disciples, and not only his disciples, the other people that he would speak to, the crowds, the multitudes, and speaking to them, he got many to be his disciples. What was that? They were coming to the water. They were coming to the well. They were wanting to journey along. They were wanting to follow him. It wasn't about, you have to join us, you have to jump over this hurdle, you have to get past this fence, and then you can be a part of our group. They were invited to come along and some point as they came along there was the conversion where they said I know that you are the Messiah. I recognize that. I see that. I understand that. And then that discipleship continued. After the conversion. And so there is a pre-conversion discipleship. There is the conversion when we accept Christ as the Lord in our lives. And then that discipleship continues afterwards. And that's what we see in those that he chose. And that's what we see in the people that he ministered to along the way. They didn't have to come to this faith before they could be discipled. They just had to be invited to the journey. And here's why this is so important. We make it so difficult for people to come to know Jesus. And we've made it something that they think it's about following rules and regulations. You have to be a part of this moral majority if you're going to be into this ranch that we call the church. And if you don't meet our requirements, you can't get in the fence. You have to first make all the requirements, get in the fence, and then we'll work on you. And Jesus said, follow me. Let's take a walk. There's some water over here. Let me show you what it is. And they took them on this journey to this place where they began to understand who Jesus was. I mean, think about the disciples. Following Jesus for this three plus years, they argued with each other. I'm greater than him. Lord, who's the greatest? Let me sit on your right hand. They shooed kids away. Get out of here, you kids. Scat. Great. And Jesus had to say, what are you doing? Let him come to me. What about James and John? Lord, you want us to call fire down from heaven and destroy them? I wish Jesus would have said, yeah, go for it. Let's see what you got. <laughs> well, you know, we're kind of hoping you would you'd bring the fire part, Lord. We we're just, you know, we're here with you. We're, you see they they were so off to the side and not understanding who Jesus was, what he was about. They didn't get it yet. They weren't in the know. And depending on basically how you've grown up in your Christianity. The Pentecostal group believes that the conversion took place in Acts chapter 2. Most Protestants believe that conversion actually took place in John chapter 20, verse 24, when Jesus breathed on them after the resurrection and said, receive ye the Holy Spirit. And then the new covenant was issued into their lives where they became what we would call born again and actually followers. That means for three years, he spent time with these men, leading them, leading them, leading them to the place of conversion, and then the Spirit continued that work thereafter. The Challenges me, and I hope to challenge you. Who are you discipling? Who are you journeying with and leading to water? Who are you taking on this road? So that they have this understanding of who Jesus is, what he's like. You see, most conversion takes place in a way where a person starts and they're just aware of God. They know God is out there somewhere, and then that awareness becomes more in tune. I am aware of God, but now I'm aware of this gospel message about Jesus, who he is, what he did. And you see, this spiral that's taking place is people on this journey, People in this discipleship process, maybe they're way at the outskirts of the spiral. They're they're just barely understanding who God is. Their idea of God, you know, is, well, you know, I believe everything is God and I believe in reincarnation and I believe whatever. It's out there, they have some belief in God, but then as you journey with them and you start talking to them, about Jesus, who Jesus was, they start moving along this spiral. And then there comes a time where there's a positive attitude towards the gospel. They hear the teachings of Jesus and they start resonating in their soul. And they start thirsting for these things. And they start quenching the thirst within their soul. And they start believing these things. And as that belief comes on, there comes a recognition of their problems. Basically, the recognition of all our problems, sin. We understand that the problem between me and God isn't God, it's me. There's a deficiency in me that needs to be fixed. And they come to this recognition, understanding what it is, and so they decide, I I need to take the next step. I recognize that I'm not who I want to be, and I recognize that God has to change me. That's the gospel message. And so then they repent, have faith in Christ, and then they're a new Creation in Christ they're a convert they become a Christian now that's still taking place in this spiral And you see the spiral is coming to this place where they are closer and closer to the center of who Jesus is Being like Jesus being a disciple and so they have this post-decision evaluation They recognize what they've done. They recognize where they're going. They now become a part of the church incorporated into a church community a body of believers They continue on and growing in their faith. They communion with God. They become stewards of the things that God has blessed them with, the gifts that God has given to them. And then they start reproducing. They too start making disciples. And you see, this pattern of discipleship now isn't one that is a fence that is closed, but it is one that is a journey that leads to Jesus now. Not all of them go to Jesus, of course. But what this does is help us to walk alongside of them. And it's not that we have to be churchy and preach to them. Our lives should be a testimony. The things that we talk about. You see, the conversation and the content will change if you're discipling someone. You might be talking about automobiles, you might be talking about musical instruments, you might be talking about work, you might be talking about a number of things, and then as you get to know someone and get to grow with them, the conversation becomes deeper, it becomes more personal. You start talking about issues that matter to you, things that you struggle with, things that they're having a difficult time with. Maybe they're married, have children, having problems financially, and all of a sudden the conversation moves into a deeper level. And then the conversation gradually moves to this place, naturally moves to this place, where it discusses the belief in God and the recognition of who Jesus is. And you wonder, why did Jesus teach in parables? Why did he do things this way? Because he was luring them. That those who really wanted to hear, they would keep coming back. Those who really wanted to search after God, they would find God. And you see, if you see people in this perspective, it makes it a lot easier to go and make disciples. I had heard so many times, and maybe you've heard too, that God doesn't hear sinners. That if a person doesn't have faith in Jesus, God doesn't listen to them. And I started to think, well, what, what was Solomon saying in, in Chronicles, when he dedicated the temple and he said, Lord, when the foreigner, the unbeliever comes to this, your temple, hear and answer their prayer that they might know that you are God. Who is Jesus talking to when he said, ask and it shall be given, seek and you will find, knock and the door shall be opened, only those who believed? Or was he talking to the multitude, telling them, seek after God and he will lead you? What about Cornelius in Acts chapter 10? who was a devout man, and God gave him a vision. Send for Peter. Have Peter come. And then God gave Peter a vision, because Peter was a little slow too. I perceive that God is speaking to me. There is a knock on the door when I'm having a vision. It must be God. So Peter goes to Cornelius, and while Peter is talking and declaring the things about God, all of a sudden Cornelius starts speaking in tongues. He interrupts him. What are you going to do with people like that? When did he become born again? See, God was working on him, even though he was a centurion, a Gentile. He had this knowledge of God, he was in this journey. And when he finally heard the message of Christ, it clicked. Faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of God, and faith welled up within him. What about Zacchaeus, another tax collector? They hated tax collectors. Tax collectors are thieves. I still think that's true. <laughs> we had to call the IRS because we had this, you know, man, when you get a letter from the IRS, doesn't that just, you just you feel like running away, you know, I'm gonna go become a hermit, I'm gonna go live on the street, they, they've caught me, you know, they, they, they found out, you know, saying, you owe a thousand dollars, like, what, how do I, and, you know, and Kareen was on the phone for like two hours saying, what is this about, and they go, oh, sorry, our mistake, it's like, yeah, you know, my husband, you know, we're trying to get him to be alive again, anyway, I digress, Zacchaeus climbed a tree just to find out about Jesus. And Jesus said, hey, Zacchaeus, we're going to eat at your house today. You're going to eat at that thief's house? Do you understand the things that Jesus did? And what would we do if we saw those things? You know, I I imagine a, a pastor coming up to one of the people in his church and he says, you know, Jimmy, I need to talk to you. You've been seen at some pretty rowdy parties. In fact, someone said they saw a prostitute and you were talking to that prostitute. She was even wiping your feet with her hair. What's that about, Jimmy? And you were at a wedding and they ran out of wine and you went out and you bought a keg for them? Come on. I'm sorry, You remind me of someone I know, but I can't put a finger on it, but you're going to have to leave. Do you realize that Jesus made 80 gallons of wine? Just think about that. That's a lot of wine. And that's after they drank. Now, I'm not advocating you go buy 80 gallons of wine. I'm just throwing that out to you guys, okay? You you wrestle with that. You see, Jesus went to Zacchaeus' house and he sat with them and he ate with him and he talked with him and all of a sudden Zacchaeus says, whatever I've taken that was wrong, I'm going to give it back. And Jesus said, salvation has come to this house. Why? Because his God that was that money, that was that greed, has now been put aside and he is following the true God. He saw the light and Zacchaeus came to the knowledge of who Christ was and what God desired of him. And as Jesus journeyed with him by going to his house, if he never went to his house, and if we never go to their house, if we never talk to them, if we never walk with them, never recognize that we are discipling them. Now, don't do this. Don't have a friend and say, I'm going to disciple you. Come on, let's walk together, okay? Thank you, you know. (laughs) Did I ask for this discipleship? What have I done to gain such privilege? Befriend someone, walk with them, journey with them. But see them on a journey and recognize where God is working within their lives and allow the Spirit of God to direct you in conversation and lead them to the water. You see... Paul told us in Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, that not many of us are wise. Not many of us are noble. I don't think any of us are noble. Anyone here come from noble birth? I didn't think so. We're Americans. We got no nobility. God has chosen the foolish things to confound the wise. The weak things to bring to nothing the things that are strong. God uses us, ordinary people, And and God wants to do this with us. And we need to put aside this understanding of evangelism and simply readapt the Great Commission as our guide. You know, simply discipling people everywhere. We should see discipleship as a process that includes the conversion. And if God does that work, miraculous new birth, then the discipleship continues after that. But it's the journey with these people. Jesus is our example. He's always been and he always will be our example, even in the incarnation. We see that God identified with us. He became one of us. Jesus hung out with people. He made himself available to people. They didn't have to come find him at the synagogue. He went out to them. That's why the Pharisees were so ticked off. Why is he out here with them? Why is he befriending these sinners? Jesus was with the people. He identified with them. He made himself available. He lived among them. He spent time hanging out with them at weddings, parties, coffee shops. Well, you get the idea. He didn't hang out exclusively in the religious zone. But he made himself available to them. He was humble. He didn't come across as self-righteous, proclaiming them. He washed the disciples' feet. Philippians chapter 2 gives this beautiful illustration that we should do nothing out of selfish ambition, but in lowliness of mind, esteem others as more important than ourselves. Taking Jesus as our model. Though he was God, he, he emptied himself, became of no reputation. We need to adopt that mentality. And then he proclaimed, we have to be willing and able to share in this ministry of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5.18, it tells us that we have all been given this ministry of reconciling, bringing people who are apart from God to God. That's what Jesus did, that's what we do. Why? Because we are his disciples, and we are to make disciples of all nations, people all over the world. Bring them to the understanding of who Jesus is, what he has done, and what he desires to do in their lives. I was reading a book. It was called Untamed. and in a part, there's a gentleman named Neil Cole who talks about when he was a young boy in his teens, early teens, he went to Africa with his brother. He and his brother were only a year apart. And they went in this trip to Africa, and they stayed at this place that was actually a treehouse hotel that was over a watering hole where all the animals would come and stay. And so they'd be able to look out over this. It sounds so cool, doesn't it? They'd be able to look over and see all these animals, the zebras, water buffaloes, you know, the leopards and all. I mean, it was just a, a you know incredible scene taking place all around them. Well, there's also monkeys there and the baboons and things, they didn't have a problem getting up into the treehouse. And so it was really common for them to be up there stealing stuff. In fact, they said, close your windows, because if you don't close your windows, you're going to have some guests in there and they're going to take everything. He saw one baboon reaching into this lady's purse to take her camera. And he thought he would catch the baboon. And so he grabbed the baboon by the tail. Yeah, he wasn't the sharpest knife in the drawer. He said the baboon turned to him and had teeth the size of his arm. And they were as sharp as Allison, you know, the girl in in his class. I mean, the baboon was just there in his face, teeth right there. He said he froze. Of course, he let go of the tail. The baboon grabbed the camera and took off. He says, it was wild. One time he was walking because you were able to go down and they had this other place that you could walk across. And he was walking across and he saw all the people waving at him. They were like waving at him to either go back or, or to come forward. He didn't understand. So he, he picked up the pace and ran back up into the treehouse. And they said, there was a leopard stalking you. Now they had a sharpshooter that was in the treehouse ready to take out the leopard if he needed to. But he was thinking to himself, man, the story I have when I get back to school. Now, what happened with Neil is he lived this adventure, but his brother stayed inside the whole time that they were there and just read books about Africa. He didn't go out on the safaris, he didn't get chased by the rhinoceroses, he didn't grab baboons by the tail. He didn't get stalked by a leopard. He just read about it. And you see, a lot of our lives and following Jesus is just reading about it. We're not living this adventure. You wonder, wow, there's nothing really happening in my Christian life. Who are you journeying with? I guarantee, if you hang out with the people that Jesus hung out with, you're going to have some stories to tell. You hang out with the people who are hurting. I mean, these people were desperate. These people would scream in a crowd, Son of David, have mercy on me. And the crowd would be saying, shut up! And they'd shout all the louder, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. I need to be healed of my blindness. They were desperate. They tore up somebody's roof to let their friend down so that he can be healed by Jesus. These were the people that surrounded him. People who were desperate. We need to recognize that there are desperate people around us. And we need to begin our journey with them. And we need to take discipleship and apply it to them wherever they're at. And just like Jesus approached Peter there in the boat. And Peter says, you don't know who I am. I'm a sinner. Depart from me. Jesus said, come on. You're just who I'm looking for. Because that's just who God is looking for. This Christian life is untamed. And we need to recognize it. The church is only as good, is as, good as its disciples. We need to understand that. The church is only as good as its disciples. And tamed disciples form tamed churches. But adventurous disciples will form an untamed church that will change the world. What do we want? Let's pray. Lord, what is it about your holiness that caused the sinful people of humanity to flock to you like a magnet? What is it about your holiness, Jesus, that was so inviting to those who were so far from you and irritated so much the religious people around you? Lord, I think the bigger question is why is it the opposite today? Why is it that the church today and the holiness we present repels those who don't know you and solidifies the core group? Lord, I believe we are building fences around you. Like the disciples shooing kids away, we don't even recognize that we're, we're shooing people away from you, Lord, because we aren't recognizing how to disciple them correctly. And so I pray, Lord, that you would give us understanding, give us boldness, give us the power of your Holy Spirit to do these things, to be like you, Jesus, to take this incredible message of who you are, of what you've done, of how you are able to quench and satisfy, Lord, the longing of our souls to those around us. Lord, may we be your disciples, and may we make disciples of all nations. Lord, we do pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.